Hey, Laura. Hey, Lizzie. The Lord be with you. And also with you. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, I'm the Reverend Lizzie McManus-Dale. And I'm the Reverend Laura DePamphilo. Welcome to And Also With You. A new podcast on reclaiming an ancient Christian faith for modern Christian life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to And Also With You, our humble little podcast. Today, we will have some more Advent content. You are certainly welcome to listen to this episode at any time of the year, but we are recording this in Advent and have a few special Advent episodes that have been coming out. So here's another. And we thought we would talk about a major part of Advent today. Lizzie, what is our topic? Our question, because we always like to start with a question, is did Mary know? Hmm. Did Mary know? Did she know? Did she know? <laughs> Mary, did you know? No. <laughs> the, the question being, <laughs> we're talking about my girl, my lady, our lady, the Virgin Mary, who's sometimes called Mother Mary or Our Lady of, insert here. So being in Texas, the big one is Our Lady of Guadalupe or the Virgin de Guadalupe. But also, if you've ever seen like Notre Dame in Paris, that big fancy church, that Notre Dame Mm -hmm. is just French for Our Lady. So Our Lady of Paris. Our Lady is interesting because sometimes that can refer to a church or a building, but it also refers to Mary. And so there's like kind of this duality of like being home in Mary and home in the church and her body being the body that first encased the word. And that's what churches do too. They are bodies that hold the body. So. Ooh, we just like flew up into the in there. real quick. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. That's what happens in Advent. You know, you're here on Earth one minute, and then you're in the heavens, and then you're mm, back on Earth incarnate. You know, it's all over the place. So today we thought we would talk a little bit about Mary and answer that question. Did Mary know? And we'll share more about where that question comes from because some of you are like, oh, cringe. No, not that question. And others might never have heard that question before. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah. But I want to know first, Mara, <laughs> what did you hear about Mary growing up? So I have shared on this podcast, I mostly grew up evangelical non-denominational Christian culturally in suburban Boston. So it's just, I share that because it's very different than being evangelical in other parts of the country. (laughs) And, but, you know, I grew up with no theology of saints at all. I grew Mm. up basically just with just with Jesus. I mean, for us, the biggest emphasis was on God, was on Christ. And that was the emphasis of, and I didn't really grow up with Advent. So I grew up basically with Christmas and Jesus was the whole focus. I truthfully have no memory of teachings about Mary, which sounds like wild to say now because surely I learned about Mary, but there was no theological emphasis on her Mm. in the churches I grew up in. Uh, She was a great faithful woman, the mother of God. Yes, we did talk about those things. But beyond that, there was no devotion. There was no real focus, no emphasis on Mary and what she did. And honestly, Mary was presented as a faithful person, but 
in the same way that all of us are called to be faithful people. And so Mary growing up had no elevated status. She mm-hmm. was, you know, the same as John the Baptist. She was the same as, you know, insert person from Bible here, kind of in importance. I mean, she's a, a character in the story, but not the main point. So it's been interesting for me being in the Episcopal Church because the Episcopal Church has a lot of different theology and perspectives on Mary. You know, there's great diversity. And I know you're about to share in a minute about your experiences, which are very different than mine, um, <laughs> and your beliefs, which are in some ways similar, in some ways different than mine. But I'm saying this because from my understanding in the Episcopal Church, there is more of an emphasis of Mary. Yeah. Um, and certainly I'm thinking of some friends who identify as Anglo-Catholic. They in particular have a very high view of Mary and you know, certainly other identifying Episcopalians do have a higher view of Mary too. But for me, it's a big contrast in the Episcopal Church from where I was raised. And so for me, being in this tradition, I often feel kind of like an outsider because I, I wouldn't say that I still hold the views that I had growing up on Mary. I think maybe she has more of an elevated status or maybe there's just more of a theological understanding of who she is and, and what she does for our faith. But I often just don't identify with people's devotion to Mary. And I don't know if I'm just so deeply programmed <laughs> from growing up where now I'm just like, can't make the shift on that. But I, we were talking before this episode. It's also okay. You know, I don't, yeah. I'm not like a reverent about Mary. I don't say, oh, Mary, who? You know, she didn't do much. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say that, but I, I've never really felt a special connection to her. I mm-hmm. will share that. And sometimes I feel like that's wrong. Like I'm, I'm doing faith wrong. I, why can't I, you know, build this special connection? But it is what it is, you know? And yeah. I think that it just represents that there are many ways to be faithful and have relationship with Jesus and with Mary. But Lizzie, I would love to hear a little bit about your kind of upbringing and your current understanding of Mary. I would love to share. I just first want to say that part of the gift, I think, of believing in saints, which we do believe in the Episcopal Church. And there's sort of a whole, mm-hmm. I think, spectrum of belief in saints in terms of like, do we, you know, do we believe in the priest of all believers or that all people are saints and all people are sinners? Yes. But there are some Episcopalians who have kind of a more Catholic view that is saints are like supernovas of the faith. They're like particularly (laughs) anointed people who even in the realm of heaven are like reaching out to us beyond just the saints of like the lowercase s saints of like people we love who have died, like they're guiding lights. But And so the gift of having a belief in many saints is that some are going to speak more to us than others. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and Mary mm-hmm. is my saint and <laughs> has been for a long time. But what's interesting actually is that so I grew up, I shared before, Roman Catholic for the first decade of my life and then United Methodist. And it was while I was in middle school that my mother pursued ordination and was ordained in the United Methodist Church. And I basically then had like five bridge years where I was both Episcopalian and Methodist before fi- finally making the leap and have spent the third decade and, and tend to spend every other decade of my life in the Episcopal Church. 
And my family is very, very Catholic. And so my mom actually really did not have a devotion to Mary growing up because I think Hmm. she had been presented with an image of Mary that she was so pure and so untouchable because she's impossible. She's a virgin and a mom, right? Mm -hmm. And that presentation was presented as the ultimate ideal for women and like just like this unreal image of what perfection was. And so my mom had some real dissonance with her, but I... (laughs) Never let that stop me. (laughs) I remember in my childhood, so I moved a lot as a child. I ended up in North Carolina where I was raised, but I actually moved 10 times before the age of seven. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that was really consistent in that was Catholicism. And Mm so I don't, you know, I can't remember every single Catholic church we ever went to, but it clearly had a lingering impact on me. And I remember many different sort of Marian chapels. Because often when you walk into a Catholic church, even if it's in like a strip mall (laughs) or if it's in a big, beautiful, you know, cathedral sized space, there's like the main sanctuary, which is like the room where you have chairs or pews and there's an altar. But usually in all four corners, there are little chapels, which usually have like a statue and a little like tray of candles and a little kneeler. So you can kneel and usually you're invited to pay like 25 cents to a dollar. It's a donation. You don't have to, but donate some money, which is goes to the upkeep of the church. It's not like some people hear that and they're like, it's an indulgence. It's like, no, (laughs) it costs money to keep these things open. Yeah. To buy the candles. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not paying for your prayer. It's just, you know, an invitation to offer. And that's the same in like, if you go to any big, if you've ever been on like a trip to Europe and you've been in big churches, they have Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, but there was a chapel always to Mary or to the Holy Family, which is Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And I loved it. And even in my very Protestant Methodist church, there were stained glass windows, like really beautiful new, because it was a church plant. And actually a funny thing about being a church planter is like one of the stories that is sort of circulated amongst, you know, the church planting set, aka people who are building these new communities is that, you know, usually you're in this like pop-up phase for a while. So you like kind of do church in a parking lot or you do church in a gymnasium at at a school and we did it in a restaurant and now we've signed a lease. But eventually the goal is like to build a more permanent space that you own, not for all churches, but for ours, it will be. And the the sort of story that's told is like, once you build that more permanent church building, you're going to double in size. And my Mm. family was the one of the many families who joined this Methodist church when they had like literally just opened their doors. Hmm. And so they had these like very new stained glass windows done by an artist that, and they had one of Mary that was just spectacular. And I, I just remember sitting and looking at her in times in church when I was really sad or really happy. And it was just partially because I felt represented because I saw a woman up front. And I think in both Catholic and Protestant circles, by and large, there's so much emphasis on Peter, on Paul, on Thomas, on, on all the like, on Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) I cannot tell you how many times I heard stories about Peter being like the ultimate disciple because he's so human and like, Mm-hmm. He's like always blurting things out and making mistakes just like us. And I was like, I don't relate to Peter really at all, which is funny because <laughs> I kind of do more now. But yeah. actually, I just saw myself represented because there was a woman, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Right. And that's like partially what drew me to Mary. But mm-hmm. also in, in the unfolding years, what has drawn me to her is that she is truly human. Mm-hmm. There's a myth that Catholics worship Mary, and I kind of understand. Like, I really get it. Like, if you walk into that, definitely believed that growing up. I remember thinking 
I don't need to pray to saints. I can pray to God. <laughs> like, right. why, why do they pray to saints? That's so weird. Totally believe that. And how would you answer that question now if someone was like, what do you believe in praying to saints? If someone said that to me now, I would say we don't pray to saints. We pray with saints. So I would say we ask for their intercessions because, you know, if we believe that time is really a human construct that we are given to make sense of all this stuff, there is a time, it's funny to say, there's a time when there will be no time. But we believe that, you know, after people die, they step into a different realm, a different understanding of time, God's time. And so they are able to pray for us, pray with us, pray alongside us. And that to me now, today, mm. that is a great comfort. I love that because these people, Mary, the mother of God, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, insert saint here who I, I really admire their faith. To me, it's I'm not worshiping them because there were probably a lot of things they did that were messed up, just like messed up stuff I do. Maybe we just are less aware because it was a long time ago and they didn't have, I don't know, social media or diaries. I don't know. <laughs> but no, but that's like, yeah, exactly. They're like, real. Um, these are, right. Yes, these are real people. And so to kind of almost bring them to life now and, and say that they can pray with us and it's not bringing them to life. It's they are alive. You know, they're alive in Christ. And so it's not worshiping something, it's worshiping with. And to me, that's really rich. And I, I really, my faith is deepened through that theology. Yeah. To just close loop, I, I said mm -hmm. John Chrysostom. He's a saint who we really revere in the Episcopal Church. A lot of people read his homilies and he was terrifyingly anti-Semitic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think exactly to your point, there are people who are leaders, but we don't worship them. Mm -hmm. And we, we hold them complexly and their humanity can hold that we can hold history and context and also hold harm and also hold beautiful theology and trust that God does the judging and the sorting. And it's on us to tell the truth of that, right? And so Absolutely. To, to come back in, into talking about Mary, I so she partially she was this like feminine image. And I am just I chose to go to a women's college. I was one class shy of being a double major in gender studies. So I was a religion mm -hmm. major with a focus on gender studies. Like I have always been here for the girls, gays and days. Like mm -hmm. always. I mean, mm -hmm. my favorite class in high school was my women's. Ensemble. Like I just, I care deeply and I'm drawn deeply to feminine power and imagery mm -hmm. and leadership in part because I was raised to. And also I think because Mary has always had a particular presence in my life because while my like I share that my mom's sort of struggle with Mary, just like my mom and I are, we have a great relationship. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I, what she was sharing in that with me was that I didn't have to be perfect. So that was like my mom being a great mother. And mm -hmm. my grandmother on my father's side has a very deep devotion to Mary. And my grandfather had a very deep devotion to Mary. And I don't share my child's name because of safety, but we gave our daughter a Marian name. Mm -hmm. And so in part to honor this deep family commitment and love for her. And I think that she, what I cherish about Mary as a saint is how deeply human 
she was. Mm-hmm. Because while I think it is very understandable, especially if you've never been in a Catholic or Episcopal or Orthodox church space, if all you've ever seen when you walk into church is essentially an auditorium or a big space with a cross maybe at the front, like you didn't mm-hmm. grow up in a church or you haven't been exposed to church that has like icons and imagery, like this is a thing Christians have fought about for a really long time historically. Mm-hmm. Like there mm-hmm. have always been strains of Christians who are like, we want art everywhere. And art is an expression of God's co-creativity with us. It is us talking back to God. It is reflecting beauty, which is one of God's gifts to us. I am 100% one of those Christians. Like I describe my style as Catholic maximalism. And I mean, my God, (laughs) look at Jubilee. How many candles can we fit in our little (laughs) altar space with our giant flower wall? And like, I mean, it's like, I remember actually going to a Greek Orthodox church in Bethlehem and it was like this big, beautiful old Byzantine church. I mean, it's like, you know, and it's, there's been a church on that site for like 2000 years. There's like all kinds of fixtures everywhere. And clearly all the Greek Orthodox mamas had like also decorated it because they were (laughs) like cheap plastic ornaments like christmas baubles that you see on a christmas tree like hanging off of these like very old light fixtures because they were like more pizzazz and i was like (laughs) like calls to like this energy is the energy i carry into everything it's like the the ali Mm -hmm. wong i'm a mom now and i need to have glitter on everything like i've always had that energy (laughs) and so if you've never experienced church where you walk in and there's like eight thousand pictures and paintings and statues yeah you're gonna be like oh my god these people do worship mary right Right, because like, right. Yeah. the pictures are what we worship. And that's not actually true, but I totally anthropologically get why that impulse is there. But and I think it is a worthwhile question to ask ourselves what images do we revere and what does that teach us about how we value power? What does that teach us about what we think is holy? And for me, the images of Mary have one been representation for me to see the feminine to see motherhood and to Mm -hmm. see women as part of the call of God into leadership and service the whole time. But also she's powerful because she's not God and she followed God's call anyway. And I think for all the stories of like bumbling men, and they're also faithful men too, like, please don't, you know, get me twisted here. But like, there was also a woman who did get it right Mm -hmm. and who said yes. So that's why she matters to me. Yeah. I identify and appreciate a lot of what you shared. And yeah, when you read scripture, there are a lot of dudes named and not as many women and not as many women named. Mm -hmm. So to have a name of a faithful woman is quite powerful and quite moving. And I'm very grateful, grateful for her. And her name actually has a lot of power. So the name Mary is the Greekified version of the name Miriam. And if you know the Old Testament, aka the Hebrew Bible, if you know the book of Exodus, you know that Miriam was a prophet and she was the sister of Moses. And Miriam is a big part in the story of Israel being liberated by God out of bondage in Egypt. And there's the the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and then the coming into the promised land and being freaked out and then wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years before returning to the promised land. And one of the archaeologically oldest parts of scripture is the song of Miriam and the song of Moses, which goes, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Mm -hmm. And that's Miriam singing about... God's 
conquest of Pharaoh. So Miriam was like a superhero in the faith, still is, especially mm-hmm. in Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so to name your daughter Miriam was quite common. And so the name Mary is the Greek version of Miriam. And so mm-hmm. right away when we meet Mary, first of all, that's why there's so many Marys, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Just like, you know, I think about common names today, like Emily or Elizabeth, right? There's like common names. So, and they, they're named for, you know, sometimes there's like various historical influences, but in this particular case, Miriam was the influence on the Marys. And so she has that name. And so in some ways, I think that's really powerful because like, she's kind of just the everyday Jane, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we meet Mary for the first time in Luke chapter one, which we've talked about on our Bible episode. It's, you know, I love this story, but the angel Gabriel comes to her and says that she is highly favored by God. And they have this exchange where the angel is like, God has chosen you to carry God's own son into the world. And she's like, how can this be? And the angel says, listen, like even your crusty old cousin, Elizabeth, for whom was said to be barren has conceived a child for nothing is impossible with God. And grammatically, that could also be nothing will be impossible for God. It's like the tense is really messy. And I just love that. It's like time. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. And Mary responds saying, let it be with me according to your word. And then Mm -hmm. the angel departs from her. And there are certainly some scholars who I think rightly ask the question, could Mary have said no? Because how do we say no to God? And I would say, (laughs) we say no to God all the time. All the time. In the Bible. Like easy. Read the book of Jonah. Speaking from personal experience. (laughs) Right. Right. And like, I hold space for people to have that response. To me, it's very, very important to me. And I think very true that she says yes. And the Mm -hmm. angel doesn't leave her until she gives her consent. And and we get in John 1, and the word became flesh. In the beginning, the word was God. The word was with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I just love that connection of let it be with me according to your word. And the word made flesh through this human body of Mary. And she had had a normal, you know, as far as we know, pregnancy, like she probably had morning sickness. She probably had certain foods she preferred, right? Like, yeah. like she did not have some super divine anything. And there, there are Catholic doctrines, like things like the Immaculate Conception saying that Mary was conceived without sin, which is why she was able to be the superhuman person through her parents, which like, I mean this with the greatest respect. I was raised with that. I just... It really matters to me that she's human and that she was just a human being who had human experiences like anybody else. Right. Um, And that doesn't mean she got it perfectly, but she was faithful. Hello, listeners. This is Father Lizzie from the future. Laura and I realized that we left something out of this conversation, so we wanted to circle back and address it. So I just want to say at the top that there are faithful Christians who disagree on this the world over. And part of the task of the life of faith is learning how all of us can pursue the kingdom of God to be disciples of Jesus Christ and not always agree on the finer points of scriptural interpretation or theology, but actually remain committed to being disciples of Jesus Christ. And in this disagreement, remain committed to women's agency, autonomy, and ability to give enthusiastic consent, and remain committed to unraveling and disempowering cultures of sexual violence, which is what we want to do when we say that Mary did in fact give consent enthusiastically to carry the Christ child, Emmanuel, into the world. But people often say, wait a minute, wasn't Mary like a teenager? Like, could she give consent? Like, understand that it's ancient world, modern values, but like, even then, okay, let's unpack this. First of all, child marriage 
has never been a common thing in cultures across the world throughout history. It was exceptional. And just like all exceptional things, we often hear more about the exceptional thing than the norm. Consider, right, we haven't heard every single person ever who sings, but we listen to people with exceptional talent or who have exceptional access to like the recording industry on Spotify or whatever, right? It was exceptional. And even if there were child betrothals, which could have been the case with Mary to Joseph, these child marriages, they were not consummated. And this is because people throughout history had, I think, an even more robust understanding than we have today of the absolute perils of childbirth and of pregnancy. So even if a 12-year-old can conceive a child, we know that it is very unsafe for their bodies to carry that child to term and the likelihood of them surviving childbirth, especially before modern medicine, very low. So that's the first thing. And I think we have to understand that the sort of persistent myth that child marriage or women were married off or girls were married off to men, it's a myth that persists because it supports patriarchal white supremacy. And it does because it supports a culture of sexual violence. So consider this. In the Episcopal Church, we have this thing called the three-legged stool, which is sort of our matrix for how we make decisions. And we say reason and experience, because I'm a little bit Wesleyan, <laughs> scripture and tradition. These are the three sort of undergirding principles of how we make decisions about our ethics, about how we live our life, about how to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when you have the power of tradition behind you, if you have the capacity to say, hey, it's always been done this way, or it's been done this way traditionally or before that like supports your argument. And so it supports this myth of child marriage being common, supports patriarchal cultures of sexual violence, and also supports patriarchal ideas that women have to have some sort of eternal youthful beauty. And it also supports a culture that sexualizes girls, which is gross. <laughs> And so let's actually zero in on Mary's age. For more on this, I really recommend Amy Jill Levine and Ben Witherington III's book, The Gospel of Luke. Amy Jill Levine in particular is a Jewish scholar of the New Testament, and I think she brings a really interesting and fresh and rich perspective to this. So as they outline, most women in Judea at this time were not married until their late teens or early 20s. So certainly archaeologically and culturally, it is far more likely that Mary was in her late teens or early 20s. And the idea that she was 12 or 14 does come from some apocryphal texts, but apocryphal texts are not scripture. They are stories that were circulated about scripture after it was codified and produced and shared. So... All of this is like kind of unpacking the like historical bits of Mary and how we talk about consent. And I'll be real with y'all. This is a little bit outside my realm of expertise, but what is inside my realm of expertise as a priest is how we talk about God. And I deeply believe that how we talk about Mary's capacity to give consent is reflective of how we think about, how we speak about, how we imagine, and how we live into God's gift of free will to us. How we talk about Mary's ability to give or receive consent is reflective of how we think God is and what God does. And it is a, a deep doctrine and orthodox belief of Christianity, meaning that lots of people over lots of years have argued about this and come to the conclusion over many, many centuries that this is true. And the truth that we believe is that God gives us free will, free agency, and free choice right from Genesis, right from the Garden of Eden. And in fact, we see often parallels drawn between Mary and Eve. 
And part of that is because of this dimension of belief in God's free agency and free choice as gift to us. Now, I think we'll do a whole episode in the future on Eve and how she's been misaligned and blamed for things beyond the scope of her fault. But I do believe that Eve makes a free choice against God when she eats the quote-unquote forbidden fruit and Adam, who is there with her. And Mary makes a free choice to choose God. That's why they're often held up in parallel and tension to one another. And Jesus is seen as the new Adam and Mary is seen as the new Eve because she makes a free choice to choose God. And we also see this because we can look at how Mary herself talks about her experience. So not only does the angel not depart from her until Mary says, let it be with me according to your word. And yes, the angel did announce that this was happening, but also the angel doesn't leave her to be overwhelmed and overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit until she says, yeah, let this happen. Let it be with me according to your word, the word made flesh, right? But also the first thing she does that we're going to unpack more in this episode is she runs to visit her cousin Elizabeth and the first words out of her mouth after Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Those are words of joy. Those are words of enthusiasm. Those are words of delight. And I can't believe this has happened to me that God chose me. It is totally okay and understandable and honestly something we all do to project our own experiences onto scripture and onto these sort of characters and saints of our tradition. That's a very normal thing. We all do that. And of course, I'm doing that a little bit with Mary here too. But when we project our fear and our trauma and our culture of sexual violence onto Mary without listening to her own words, that's low-key a recapitulation of the patriarchy in my humble opinion. And I will also just say... I think it's interesting that we have in like religion classes and online, et cetera, these like really impassioned discourses around the free will of a woman and her reproductive choices far more than we have on other moments in scripture where there's question of free will. Like I've never seen people impassionately debate Jonah saying, hey, throw me over the side of the boat because this storm 100% is caused because I disobeyed God. (laughs) I think we have far more debates about women and women's bodies, which in and of itself is kind of evidence of misogyny and patriarchy. So with that in mind, let's get back to the episode. I think something that just popped into my mind as you were sharing, it's not exactly connected to Mary, but something I just want to name is that when you start to study scripture, when you start to go deep, you realize that how often we are just scratching the surface, like how many layers there are to all of this. I mean, even just the layers of Mary's name, you know, being a a callback to Miriam, you know, all of these things, noticing the ways that when you read the gospels alongside each other, how they are in conversation with one another. Like, I mean, that is the reason why I look forward to being a Christian for the rest of my life because Hmm. for the rest of my life, I am going to have new insights on things that I have read 1 million times and there are going to continue to be new layers and new meaning. And for me, that is just so, so, so exciting. Mm -hmm. And I feel extra blessed that it happens to be my job at this time. (laughs) I feel like I get to spend a little extra time that I might not have if I had a different job. But even that aside, I mean, all of us are invited in to go deeper with scripture. And I feel whenever you spend time 
with scripture and you start making these connections, it's like the best book ever. Like your mind just blows all over the place because it's that amazing. And even just hearing you talk for a minute and like everything you're saying, I I know, like I've encountered before, but I don't know, hearing it anew, I'm just like, yes, yes, I love the Bible. (laughs) It's so cool. And like we talked about this in our Bible episode. And so I really, if y'all are really wanting a deep dive on Mary, I encourage you to go back to that because like I do a deep dive on the Magnificat mm-hmm. there, which we're yeah. going to do here in a minute too. But the thing that I said there is like, I love fantasy novels. I love like a world building you yes. know, nerd out. Like I'm a big Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings fan. This is the Bible is that times eight million. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's way just better. <laughs> it's a, but like seriously, like exactly like you yeah. said, there's always more to learn. There's more to uncover, and it is a gift of our minds and our intellect and our yeah. research and science that we get to like keep digging into scripture, not only in the text as we have it, like in the Bible, you can pull off your shelf or biblegateway.com, but also the people whose life and calling is to like dig into the ground, right? And find these things and do this like historical research. Like to me, that is, it is deeply enlivening to my spiritual soul to use my mind and my body to encounter the like depth and interconnected wild intellect of scripture. Yes. Yeah. There's so much. And the more time you spend with it, the more your own faith is enriched, you know, the more, the deeper appreciation you have for scripture, for God, like just to notice that God is weaving all of these things together. And it's just chef's kiss. So truly, good. truly. And like, actually in this, the text, the Annunciation. So Annunciation is the sort of shorthand we use to refer to the scene in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces and invites her to participate in birthing the son of God into the world, Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the reason we have these titles for these scenes is one, because we refer to them a lot, like, and it's sort of a shorthand. Mm-hmm. Two, the idea that the Bible has chapters and verses is something that comes centuries later after the scripture was first codified, written down, and passed around. And also, it was largely oral until the 1500s. Most people did not own a Bible. Most people did not read the Bible. They heard the Bible in church. And mm-hmm. so they had these shorthands to refer to the scene. So that's why we have the Annunciation, which is when Gabriel comes in and visits with Mary. And then immediately after the Annunciation, we have Mary running a hundred miles from Nazareth to the Judean hill country to visit her cousin Elizabeth, a name which means the promise of God, whom she's just heard, even though Elizabeth is old and was thought to be barren. Elizabeth also has a miraculous but not virgin pregnancy. And it's so true to me that like when Mary finds out she's pregnant, the first thing she wants to do is like go connect with another pregnant woman and especially Mm. her family member who's also having this like bizarre divine experience. Cause like Laura, that was true for me and you, like Mm -hmm. we were pregnant Mm -hmm. at the same time and we had so many text exchanges Mm -hmm. and like, what are you doing for your baby registry? Or what do you think about Mm -hmm. breastfeeding or like the, yeah, 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 it's a very human exchange. Exactly. And so she runs to see her cousin. And as she's coming up the steps to see her, the title of the scene is called The Visitation. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth feels the leaping in her womb because she's in her third trimester. Mary's in her first trimester of 
who's going to be John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Which if you're Catholic, you know that is the opening line of the Hail Mary prayer, but it's mm-hmm. also scripturally to get into the nerd stuff, which talked about this Bible episode, a callback to the book of Judith, which is mm-hmm. when King Uzziah, the King Uzziah from Isaiah says, to Judith, who's just beheaded a dude and saved her entire town from Hall of Fairness, who's this like very scary general. He says, Judith, blessed art thou among women. So there's this warrior callback in this moment where these two women are pregnant. Like it's such a powerful situating of motherly tenderness within this like warrior legacy in scripture. And Mary then launches into this song that we call the Magnificat, which is just the Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord, which is the first line. And even that song she is singing is a callback to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So it's just like scripture on scripture on scripture. Yes, so many layers. And you can read the Magnificat by itself, and it has a lot of depth, and there's a lot to it. And then when you realize that it is the callback, you know, it it gains a whole nother level. So there's just so much you can do with scripture. What a gift. So Lizzie, in this conversation, I am reminded that Mary seems to know a lot about scripture. So Mary, did you know? What did Mary know? Did Mary know? Please shed some light. Why is this song? And if you've never heard this, there is a song, Mary, did you know? You can look it up. Why does this song exist? Like, what is this asking? Why are we asking this? What is the point? Okay. So Mary, Did You Know is a Christmas song that is addressing Mary, the mother of God with lyrics written by Mark Lowry in 1984 and music written by Buddy Green in 1991. I'm pulling all this from Wikipedia. It was originally recorded by Christian recording artist, Michael English, whom I've literally never heard of, but Michael, if you're listening, we love you mm-hmm. on his subtitle to be Love you in a Jesus way. Oh my gosh. I just am realizing that it's, Oh, wow. Okay, Michael English and Mark Lowry were members of the Gaither Vocal Band. Whoa, I am learning this in real time. Oh my God, that explains so much because the Gaither Vocal Band is like a big, like Southern Baptist, Baptist-y, like music group that is huge in my family. We listen to the Gaither Vocal Band all the time because my husband and his whole family like grew up with them. And so honestly, that really fits with like the, it makes sense to me that this is not, that it's written out of a a deeply Protestant context. (laughs) And I don't mean that disparagingly. It just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So, and surely you've heard this song, but if you haven't, I'm just going to read you a few of the lyrics. Mm, Please do. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? The child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mm. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. And then we go through, Mary, did you know? It's like the chorus and it sings, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? 
am. The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Friends, <sighs> may I read to you from the Bible? So this song, you know, it has a reputation. People love or it hate does. it. Where are you? Where are you in that mix? Okay. Well, I actually love it, but <laughs> but I sound like I hate it. I don't. I love it. But let me, I just, to answer these questions, right? We're asking Mary, did you know, may I read to you, Laura, from mm-hmm. Luke chapter one? Please. May I read to you the word of God? Mary said, <clears throat> Luke 1 46, Mary said, this is the common English Bible, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. This can also be translated, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This common English Bible says, in the depths of who I am, I rejoice mm-hmm. on, in God, my Savior. God has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney translates this as his womb slave because the Greek there is doula. And if you've like hired a doula for giving birth, doula is the Greek word for servant, but womb slave is what is literally there in the Greek. God has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look from now on everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows his mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him, his God. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled Mm -hmm. the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty handed. He has Mm -hmm. come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. I think Mary knew. <laughs> yeah. I, hmm. yep. I think she knew. I mean, here's the thing. What I love about this song, I genuinely love a Protestant disposition of asking Mary, because I mm-hmm. think when we ask questions, we're saying, hi, I value your wisdom. I value your experience. Mm-hmm. That may not necessarily be reverence in the sense of like believing in the saints, but it's enough reverence to say this woman has wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I think it is kind of mansplaining and pejorative in one sense. This like, Mary, did you know that like you're giving birth <laughs> to Jesus? When it's like, homeboy, did you read that Bible? She does. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, especially, and I I do think this language is ableist. I hope that we can all grow past it, but the blind will see the devil here, the dead will live again. She's literally saying God has lifted up the lowly and has sure. pulled the powerful down from their throats. Like, yeah. literally, you know, and talking about rule the nations. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. literally saying that God is going to pull the powerful off of their thrones. But I think there is such earnestness in this question because two things. One, how on earth could Mary have done this? Sure. Right? Like, how on earth, if God came to me and was like, surprise, you're having a baby, I'd be real shook. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's so many layers of which this is dangerous. This is unprecedented. This is really powerful. But also, I think this is a question, and I'm very indebted to our friend, the Reverend Ben Madison, who wrote a really beautiful piece in Mockingbird several years ago about Mary, did you know, and his experience as a foster father. And and I want you all to go read that piece and read his own words, but it just, that piece has lingered with me because he talks about the questions he would get as a foster parent who really loved and cared for the children he was fostering and the, the deep nuanced complications. And like, I love and care for many people who have been fostered, who are foster parents for who have reunited, like reunification is the goal, right? Mm -hmm. I also love and care for people in my congregation who were adopted out of really traumatic situations. So it's a big messy thing. We can't get into Mm -hmm. all of that right now, but, 
But Father Ben speaking from his experience was like, some of the questions he was asked are the questions actually that all parents face, which Mm -hmm. is like, did you know that this kind of love was going to break you in half? And if Mm -hmm. you had known that, would you have still done this? Right. Would you still have fostered? Would you still have adopted? Would you still have given birth? And Mary, we can't hear the story. Like Father Jacob talked about this in our incarnation episode. We can't hear the story of Christmas without also hearing Christ crucified and Christ risen. Yes, absolutely. And I think one thing that came to mind as you were sharing all this is as much as it is a question of Mary, it's a question of us too. You know, Mm -hmm. the trap of Advent, and I I preach this in my Advent one sermon, is that we get caught up in the past. We watch the Christmas story unfold in a pageant and pageants are so fun. Sometimes they're even live animals and babies and children dressed as sparkling little stars. I mean, it's amazing. I love a Christmas pageant. But when we are reenacting the Christmas pageant, we are reenacting a story that happened a long time ago. And the trap is that we don't realize that this is the living word. This is a story that is still unfolding that we are part of And that. So in in looking to the past, we think it's over. And so in some ways, like we are looking towards the birth of Christ and we know how it all ends. You know, we we know Mm -hmm. who Jesus is. But there is also a temptation to just think of it as the birth of a baby and maybe not fully recognize what the birth of this particular baby means for the world, for us. And I think the question should be one we ask of ourselves, maybe maybe more than than we ask of Mary, who's already proven that she Mm -hmm. probably knew, given her testimony we find in scripture. But do we know? You know, what does this mean for us today and, and how we live and how we understand the world? I don't know. It feels really easy to lose that, especially at this busy time of the year. Yeah. And I think, you know, so Anne Lamott says the opposite, paraphrasing, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Mm-hmm. And so I think to have faith, we have to be uncertain and therefore take risk. Mm-hmm. And this is, I want to do this delicately because I think often in very fundamentalist, exacting, exploitative spaces that are not, th- 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 that can be Christian, but I think this is true. There's all kinds of fundamentalism that exists that demands mm-hmm. a full-bodied certainty without doubt. Those can be very exploitative and cruel, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to say like, you need to feel unsafe in order to be faithful, but I do think if our faith does not have risk, it's not faith. Mm-hmm. And to ask this question, Mary, did you know? I wish they were like kind of a slightly different list of questions, but <laughs> I do think it's a fair thing to be like, how did you do this? Could you have known? And if you did know, how were you able to do this? Because yeah. all of us, like when I really consider the evil in the world or the potential for harm, to the ones I love or to myself, I'm very tempted to just like cocoon myself up, not read the news, not ever leave my home. Right. Like, and I think that's a temptation that all of us face and all of us like being fresh out of a time when we were literally forced into lockdown or forced to not be locked down and risk bodily safety. (laughs) Like we, we understand intimately what it means to know that the world is not a safe place. (laughs) And yet Mary's faith was risky anyway. And we see in other places in scripture, 
So we have a lot of texts about Mary in the Gospel of Luke. So she goes for her purification at the temple, which we've talked about in other places. Purification is not about being dirty and then good. It's about God acknowledging that our incarnate reality of having bodies is part of how we encounter God. And so God makes space to like have a moment. (laughs) But we have the story of her and Joseph losing Jesus as a little boy because he's hanging out in the temple. Interestingly, while there's a lot of ink spilled over Joseph and he's always depicted, he never once says anything in scripture. Joseph is present, but he doesn't say anything. But Mm -hmm. Mary talks a lot. In Mm -hmm. the Gospel Mm -hmm. of John, we have the wedding at Cana, which is Jesus's first miracle in the Gospel of John. And she comes up to him and has this whole, like, they've run out of wine. And he's like, what does this have to do with me? And she turns to the (laughs) servants and she's like, like do whatever he tells you and walks away, which I feel like is the most classic mom move of like, sweetheart, I know you can fix it. I'm not going to do it for you. And I'm not going to stand here and like micromanage, but mm, I'm going to make, make sure it happen. What needs, yeah, yeah, it needs to happen. <laughs> <laughs> we also have the story of her and his brothers being outside the house while he's preaching. And he's like, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's everybody, which can be read as like really condescending or could be read as like a theological riff. And then of course, Mary is there for the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And we hear that most explicitly in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is on the cross and he says, woman, behold your son. And he is both saying that and that she is beholding her son, which is why we ask this question, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know? How could you have endured? Mm-hmm. But he's also saying that as he is pointing to the beloved disciple and saying, mm-hmm. behold your mother. And my friend, the Reverend Alan Eunuch, delivered the most beautiful sermon I've ever heard on Good Friday in my life. He preached at my invitation on Good Friday at Jubilee. And he said, it's very possible that Jesus's first and last words are mama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which gets me every time. And so Mary is there and she's there for the resurrection too, right? And mm-hmm. so, and she's, she's there at Pentecost. That is explicit. She's there at Pentecost, the birth of the church. She's part of all of it. Yes. And so the question of faith is not like, oh, Mary had this on lock and it was super easy for her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of depth to her personhood and a lot of relatability and just a lot to admire about her life. And a lot of that is connected to her being the mother of God, but also just being a faithful person, watching her life unfold and and seeing all of the ways. I mean, all of us know faith isn't a one-time decision. Like we decide to be faithful to God, you know, every moment you have an opportunity to discern what God is calling to you in that moment. So she continues on to be a very, very devout person. And Mm -hmm. that is such an amazing example for us. Yeah. And I think to sort of circle all the way back, Laura, like I do have a very strong devotion to Mary and she is a saint to me, but that is her humanity. And I am especially fond of Mary because in the Catholic church, there's a number of feast days, including Mary queen of heaven, which is definitely a Catholic thing, but it's my birthday. So (laughs) it's also Lizzie May. Um, And so I do think that she has like a special place in heaven, whatever that looks like or whatever that means. But I think it's, (laughs) I hope people listening hear that like two people don't have to have the same devotion to have like respect and commonality and like receive the goodness of that belief from each other. Absolutely. Yeah. You can have a special devotion to Mary or not and still have an appreciation of who she is and who scripture reveals her to be. And that's totally fine and awesome. And yeah, we welcome that kind of diversity here. So you're in good Mm -hmm. company. 
Yeah. Can I offer some last fun facts about Mary before we round up? Yeah, go off. <laughs> I don't know if these are going off, but part of why you always see Mary depicted in blue. So like if you like my church will have a Christmas pageant, like Laura was talking about on Christmas Eve, Mary's almost always wearing blue. Yep. That's deeply rooted in Catholic symbolism. The blue, she's usually wearing a blue cloak and it's been interpreted to represent her purity. And again, I would say purity is like, I would say... And if you want more about this, stay tuned for future projects coming. (laughs) (laughs) Purity is about her innocence and her courage at the same time. She doesn't Mm -hmm. know everything she's going to undergo, but she still says yes. Mm -hmm. And that can lead us when we don't know all that we're going to undergo because spoiler alert, we can't control everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so blue represents her purity, but it also symbolizes the sky and the heavens. And I just love that, that like, mother encompassing all of creation. I'm looking outside in Texas as like a gorgeous cloudless blue sky today. And it's just like very Marian, but also blue labels her as an empress because blue in the Byzantine dynasty, like, you know, era in her, in her Byzantine era, (laughs) blue represented. Everyone's got to have one. Right, right, right. So blue and purple both often represent royalty, but like purple is usually affiliated with Jesus. Blue is usually affiliated with Mary, Mm -hmm. which you are the person who told me that that's a big part of why some people do blue at Advent. And now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my God, I've always been team purple, but now am I also team blue? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I like a tasteful blue. Don't get me wrong. I think we can have it all. More colors. Catholic maximalism. If anyone listening has ever seen one of my videos, TikToks or reels or whatever in my church, or if you're listening and you go to my church, (laughs) I know some of you (laughs) do. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And also, it's so funny because when you look around in our sanctuary, it's like oak and white is, you know, yeah, it's, it's nice. And then you look up front and you look above the high altar, look at the ceiling and it's blue and pink. I and saw that on the reel that we just made and I was like, oh my God, how have I never seen it? There's pink up there. It's really funny because it's, yeah, one of the former priests when they were repainting made a point of having them paint it pink and purple for Mary. That's our, our Mary ceiling, which is just very funny because if you didn't know that and you walk into my sanctuary and you're like, why is it painted that color? Yeah, it is a little strange, but it's a nod to Mary. So as Lizzie is talking about Mary colors. Yeah, because pink is also her color. And actually, wait a minute. So I don't know if we've shared this in the podcast or talked about it or I don't even know. But you know how today pink and purple, I mean, I'm sorry, pink and blue are associated with pink girls, blue boys. Well, that's pretty recent because historically pink yeah. was masculine and uh-huh. blue was feminine blue for mary and pink because it was a version of red which was understood to be masculine so anyway it's just kind of funny how these things switch throughout history part of the gift i think of christianity when we embrace the historical depth of it and also the gift like we were talking about earlier about like intellectual engagement with scripture is it decenters our ego and decenters the sense that we right now know everything i think this is also a myth especially in progressive circles like literally the word progressive is like oh with every passing year we're getting smarter and better as human beings and, and that's like, so not that is so not anything that christianity teaches literally so not it 
Yeah. yeah, this is why you and I have both like we've used the hashtag progressive Christian like to yeah, like, yeah. You know, use that. But I don't actually think first of all, I think my Christianity is very ancient, and actually mm-hmm. very connected to the ancient church. And second of all, I don't think that we're progressively figuring it out more and more every year. <laughs> yeah, I think we are just as sinful as every other Christian who ever lived. And yeah, this this term progressive is kind of funny, because I understand why some of our friends chose this hashtag to sure, kind of organize yeah. around, but and at the same you time, need a simple word. yes. And also I don't really, that's not what I believe. <laughs> yeah, and We're just as sinful. I'm grateful for things like antibiotics and the right to vote. Uh, yes. To be clear. And, yes. Also- and the fact that we can be ordained. For sure. But exactly to that point, to say that this is a recent modern development is actually not to acknowledge part of the Marian history and part of the history of women in the early church. Like we have Phoebe, who was a deacon. We have Lydia, who was a church planter. We have Priscilla and Aquila. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. And Diaconia, deacon. There were deacons and bishops, episcopos in (laughs) scripture. And we have women in those roles, or we have women at least who, who were Diaconia, deacons. And that's the first order of ordination. And so part of being decentered to this idea of like, we've got this all figured out now more than any other time mm-hmm. is one, we learn the wisdom of the saints. We mm-hmm. realize that there yes. are people who still have something to teach us, even if they were old and didn't have cars, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, but also because we recognize that God has been moving throughout time and reaching very human people with human flaws and sinfulness and messed up stuff and still co-creating something beautiful. And I think Mary is in so many ways, I mean, not only does she bear Christ into the world through her flesh, and there is a deeply mystical yet deeply human (laughs) power of a woman's womb, the darkness of a womb being the place from which God, who created the world out of darkness, (laughs) 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 I mean, the light and dark imagery of Genesis and Lucas, but also like, there is such power in something that all of us have been through is what Christ goes through birth. All of us, even if we don't have a relationship with our birth parent, like someone gave birth to us mm-hmm. and Mary was the one who was chosen to do this extraordinary, but entirely ordinary thing. Yeah. It's so I think she knew a few things. I think she, she knew. She, yeah. She knew a thing or two. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're all going to hear that song differently this Advent and Christmas now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I blast it while I'm driving, but I listen to it complexly. Maybe I should ask Carly to rewrite the lyrics to it. Yeah, that'd be fun. That would yeah. be really fun. Well, happy Advent, Lizzie. Oh my God, happy Advent. <laughs> this Blessed is, uh, Advent, whatever. Mm-hmm. However you want to wish one Maybe another well. Have a Christmas, have a Christmas yes. Yeah, we're so, we're so British. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this. Thank you for journeying with us this Advent and beyond with this project and also with you, this podcast. We are on Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash and also with you podcast. You can support us there. You can find us on Instagram. We Through our Instagram, we have a link to our email list and you can find us wherever you stream podcasts. It means a lot when you write us a review or when you share this with your friends or your congregation or whoever else needs to hear it. We are so thankful that you are all here and so enthusiastically here as well. Seriously, y'all, we're so grateful for your enthusiastic support and feedback. It's just really meant the world. This was a little dream that Laura had and then brought me into. Thank you, Laura. (laughs) The solidarity of women is just really precious. 
we have one more episode coming out for the calendar year 2023. Just a little Christmas message for y'all. And uh, then we'll have a little brief hiatus. You're going to hear from Mother Laura a little homily for Epiphany, and then we'll be back at the end of January. Of course, mm-hmm. our Patreon subscribers will get their promised bonus content in the month of January as well. And yeah, Laura, the Lord be with you. And also with you. 